0: As you're being seated, would you please grab your Bibles and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew. We're working our way through that Gospel slowly but surely, and we come to Matthew chapter 19, and I'll be reading verses 16 to 30. And If you thought the call to confession was a tough text, wait till you hear this one. So Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16 hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this word, we know that without the aid of your spirit, this message will have no power and it will fall on deaf ears. So Lord, be pleased this morning to give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, give us wills to obey and hearts that are transformed to love Christ more and to be conformed to his character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you look at the back of any American bill, you'll see a picture of the Capitol building. Yes, that same Capitol building that was recently stormed. And just above that Capitol building, suspended in the sky, you will find this phrase in all caps. In God we trust. The reason that's there is because on July 30th, 1956, President Dwight Eisenhower signed into law new legislation... Just was passed from the 84th Congress, that the phrase, in God we trust, would be America's new national motto. And I'll give two Jolly Ranchers after service to anyone who can tell me what the original motto was, but it's a rhetorical question. Well, the publishing of this phrase on the American Bill is, in my opinion, thick with irony and hypocrisy. Because the irony and hypocrisy lies in the fact that a phrase which is directing our attention to the one true God is printed on the most popular and powerful false god in America. Money is the golden calf of the modern day. And one piece of evidence of this, you know, Exhibit A evidence, is that if you look at the popular icons in our culture, the most common factor between all of the popular icons in our culture is that they're wealthy. And one person has said that when you look at a culture, you can know what people value by looking at what their icons are, their, their idols are. Because a popular icon is nothing other than what you wished you saw when you looked at yourself in the mirror. It's what you wished you saw when you surveyed your own life. That's what a popular icon is. It's, it's, if you could see it, if you could imagine it, that's what it is. And also, Exhibit B is the trailer for a new Netflix documentary series. That I, I just watched the trailer, not the series. The tagline for the series was this, If you can't be rich, at least have rich friends. It's a documentary, real, real documentary. And what that is showing is that we idolize well so much in America that if we can't have it, at least we can be near it. If there's some way, we could be near it because money is the God in whom we trust. The idol of money is not a newly fashioned idol, though, by the hearts of men. The production and pull of this idol was just as much in force in Jesus' day as it is in our day. The factory of the idol of money was running just as smoothly in Jesus' day. As it does in our own day. In fact, if you were to add up everything Jesus talked about, all of his topics, and you are to kind of weigh them, it is the topic of money that outweighs all other topics. He talked about money more than any other topic. Why is this? I don't think it's because he wanted you to be this great investment strategist. It's because he knew he was touching on one of the most potent and powerful idols in the culture. Jesus touched on money more than any subject because it touches on the object which battles most for our affections and our allegiance. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve God and money. And we see this played out as Jesus converses with someone who is wealthy. So in this passage about the rich young man, what Jesus is going to show us is this. One of the greatest obstacles to enjoying the riches of salvation in Christ is the love of earthly riches. The, one of the greatest obstacles to enjoying the riches of salvation in Christ is the love of earthly riches. So let's walk through this passage together and let's see what lessons Christ has for us in this. And the first lesson that we learn from this passage is that earthly riches is a powerful and captivating idol. Earthly Riches is one of the most powerfully captivating idols. So as we meet this rich young man, there's a few biographical details given to us about him. First is that he's young. So he's he's in the prime of his life. This is someone in the 20 to 30 range. We also know that he's devoutly religious and deeply committed to a high moral standing. That he is, is very committed to keeping God's commands. And also we know that he has great wealth. He's incredibly financially stable, and incredibly well-off. And then in Luke's parallel account of this, in his gospel, we also learn that he's a ruler. So he's got a great vocation. He has one of the elite jobs in society at that time. So he's young, he's devoutly religious, he's got a good job, and he's got a lot of money. So if, if you're a parent that has a daughter in the 18 to 24 range, and you meet this guy, immediately after that meeting... You're going to go to your spouse, and you're going to be talking about how you can convince your daughter that God loves her and has a wonderful plan for her life, namely to marry this rich young man. And if this man visited our church one Sunday, and we noticed, and we, we, you know, we knew his reputation, we knew that he was elite, he was you know, wealthy, we would be dreaming and scheming about how we could convince this person that this is the church that he needs to become a member of and start tithing to. Because we can see that building just right on the horizon. Or if you're one of the disciples who's standing there. When this man approaches Jesus, you're thinking, this is probably the greatest addition that we could ever add to our discipleship crew. I mean, we're kind of a motley crew, but this guy makes us, you know, this guy brings us up a little bit. He's not like those pesky little children that we just had to try and shoo away from Jesus. This is someone who who really can contribute to our group. He brings something to the table. Well, as Jesus talks to him, in his conversation, he does a number of things. One of the things he does is he first exposes that this rich young ruler has a deficient understanding of what good really is. And he starts in the conversation, he comes to what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And then two more times the word good is mentioned because when Jesus hears that, he's thinking, okay, if you think that you can do a good deed, it shows that you have a deficient definition of goodness. So that's why Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why do you, why do you say that, this, that you can do a good deed? There's only one who is good. What he's doing is he's drawing his attention to the ultimate source and standard of goodness, which is God alone. It's easy to think that you can do a good deed when you have a very truncated definition of good. Right? You hear people in culture all the time, I'm a pretty good person. Well, You should ask, well, how do you define good then? Because you, know, you could always find someone who's worse than you, and if that's your definition of goodness, well, then, of course, everyone's good. But he's saying, no, no, there is one standard One source of goodness, that's God alone. And then in verses 18 to 20, Jesus exposes how this man has a deficient understanding of the law and what it means to keep God's commandments. So if you look at the commands that Jesus gives, which which commands do I I need to obey? He gives him five commands that all come from what's called the second table of the law. It's, It's the part of the law that has to deal with love of neighbor. And if you look at each of them, He only leaves out one. He leaves out, you shall not covet. And he does that intentionally. The five commands he includes are all commands that on the surface focus on external actions and identifiable behavior. When it comes to coveting, you can't can't see coveting. But when it comes to all these other ones, you, you can tangibly look at them and identify them. The reason Jesus does this is because the dominant view of obedience, of righteousness in that day was all you needed to do was externally keep the letter of the law. You shall not murder. As long as you don't murder, you've obeyed that, you've kept it to the full, and you're righteous. It was an external behavior-oriented view of righteousness and obedience. And this is what Jesus dealt with in the Sermon on the Mount. And the danger of that view of the law is it gives you a false sense of security, self-righteousness. I mean, look what he said. I've kept all these. Jesus doesn't contend with that. But he does expose it. He thinks that because he's externally obeyed and kept these, he hasn't broken the letter of the law, that he is righteous. He has a false sense of security and assurance. Well, an even worse danger that accompanies an external behavior-focused view of the law is that it actually blinds you from seeing your real internal heart problem. If all you're ever doing is focusing on the surface, on the outside, on the exterior, you're not noticing what's really going on at the heart level, at the root of your being. And so this is what Jesus does with the next law he gives him. Look at verse 21. He gives him what looks like an external command that you, you could obey tangibly. But what he's really doing is giving him an external command that is designed to reveal what captures and has captivated his heart. Go, sell what you possess, everything, and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So from the the surface reading of that, it looks like this is another love your neighbor as yourself commandment. It's another tangible commandment that relates to the second table of the law. But what Jesus is actually doing is he's moving from love your neighbor as yourself to you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus knows exactly what rules this man's heart his functional, heart-level God, and he gives him a command that exposes it. He says essentially, your God is your money, and unless you let go of that God and that treasure, you do not have eternal life. You cannot worship God in money. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's a paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is like a skilled doctor who is saying to this otherwise healthy patient who He sleeps well, he diets well, he exercises well. And he he comes to Jesus and he says, "You know what what do I have to do with my sleep? What do I have to do with my diet, my exercise? Because I'm not feeling very healthy. And Jesus says, it has nothing to do with your sleep and your diet and your exercise. That's fine. It has to do with the fact that you have a tumor on your heart. And unless we do heart surgery, you're going to die. That's what Jesus is saying to him. He exposed it to him that his heart is captured by the God of money and he he cannot part with it. Because look at verse 22. One of the most tragic verses in scripture. He went away sorrowful. He went away grieving. This is not just, you know, he he shed a tear. This is is someone who feels like the Lord asked him to, to attend a funeral for his most dearly beloved. He went away grieving for he had great possessions. He was so captivated by the powerful idol of earthly riches that he would rather depart from Christ than depart from his riches. That's what Jesus is exposing. Or as one author said, this man's great possessions had such possession of his heart that he was not willing to let them go. He could not let them go. And it's important to understand that as you read this, as Jesus gives the law, you have to understand how Jesus is using the law. Jesus is not using the law as if it were a map to the buried treasure of eternal life. And he's saying, you know, if you just follow this and here's one more, you know, one more last step on the on the map, to the buried treasure of eternal life, then you'll find it. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus was using the law like an x-ray machine, revealing what truly is capturing and ruling his heart. That's what he was doing. The law is not first and foremost a map to buried treasure. It is first an x-ray machine revealing what dominates our heart. And also understand that the command to sell everything that Jesus gives to this richer and ruler is a specific command to this specific individual for a specific purpose. This is not a general command that Jesus kind of is throwing out to all the disciples. In fact, when he meets Zacchaeus, I think it's Luke 19, he doesn't, he doesn't give this command and Zacchaeus is dominated by money. It's something different. So if you're thinking that this is a one-size-fits-all command, you're mistaken. Jesus is not calling disciples to take a vow of poverty. This is how some in the church did. The Franciscan monks, St. Francis of Assisi, he he really took this verse and and kind of started his monastery based off of this. There is no spiritual bonus points for being poor. There's There's no extra credit points for giving up your riches just for the sake of giving up your riches because you can be just as captivated by the idol of earthly riches if you're poor as if you're wealthy. It can dominate you either way. This has nothing to do with income brackets. When Jesus gives this command to sell everything, I think he's doing the same thing that he did with Abraham in Genesis 21. He says to Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son. That's a specific command to Abraham for a specific purpose. He's testing Abraham to see what's in his heart and to see how genuine his faith is. That's what Jesus is doing with this rich young ruler. He's giving this unique command because he knows what's in this man's heart and he wants to reveal and test him. But if you are breathing a great sigh of relief knowing that Jesus is not commanding you to liquidate all your assets and give them away, money might be your idol more than you think it is. Put yourself in the story. Put yourself in this man's shoes and imagine that In verse 21, Jesus is talking to you. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor. If that's you, what does verse 22 look like? Is it the same as in here? You see, the point is, Jesus is not asking us to consider whether we should take a vow of poverty or not. What he's doing is he's asking us, if we had to decide between following Christ and keeping our wealth, who would win? That's what he's asking He's not saying you have to give it away because that, that somehow is going to get you into heaven. He's saying, Do you love Christ so much that if you had to choose him over money, would you choose him? Or would you walk away like in verse 22? The rich young man came to Christ because he was looking for that last garnish that would add the, the zest that his life was missing. He's like, what, what do I still lack? I have so much. I'm religious. I'm young. I'm wealthy but I know something's missing. It's like the athlete who gets to the top, professionally wins the Super Bowl. But they're like, you know, it's, it's still not everything. So, so what's that one thing I'm missing? His problem is that he's looking at Christ like he's a garnish that you can add to your life. Christ is not a garnish that you add to your life. He is the bread of life. That if you do not eat, you will starve. But if you do eat, you will never go hungry again. Christ is not just that, that missing you know, investment to your investment portfolio that really adds that, that what, you know, what you need to life. He is the treasure hidden in a field that, if you se- that is worth selling everything for to buy that one field with that treasure. Christ is not one more planet that you add to your personal solar system to make everything really running smoothly. He is the sun at the center that gives orbit and gravitational pull to every single other area of your life. And what Jesus is showing here is that anyone who would rather part with him than with money is a very poor soul. And they do not know anything about true riches and long-term investment strategies. Let's continue on to the next section of our passage. This is verses 23 and 26. And we learn from here, from the mouth of Jesus, that earthly riches is an impossible spiritual obstacle. It is not only a powerfully captivating idol— It is an impossible spiritual obstacle. So Jesus now turns his attention to the disciples. So they've they've witnessed this interaction with the rich young man. They've watched him go away. Now Jesus turns to them so that they might learn the lesson that he wants them to learn from this. And in their minds, Jesus has just completed back-to-back actions that they would have done the complete opposite with. So verses 13 to 15, if you look there, little children are being brought to Jesus. And they're trying to shoo the children away. Jesus is, is too important. He doesn't have time for little children. And he just, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And he blesses them. Well, then in verses 16 to 22, Jesus sent away, in a manner of speaking, a rich young man that the disciples would have gladly received. So he's doing everything the opposite. Put it in perspective. Imagine that Tiger Woods started attending our church. You know, he lives in Jupiter. And he wanted to become a member. And so Bob and I, I choose Bob because I know he likes to golf, we sit down with Tiger for a membership interview. And we both conclude that he has a deficient understanding of the gospel. That he, he doesn't really get it. He's talking about doing good deeds and, and wanting to you know, be nice and, and you know, live a happier life. We say, you know, we don't quite think you understand the gospel. We, you don't quite have a credible profession of faith. We'd like to work with you on that. But we're not ready to bring you into membership. Well, he doesn't like that. So he decides that he's going to go... He's going to go to a different church that will bring him into membership. And, and rumor spreads around the church that that happens. Well, that same Sunday that we tell him that, we have an infant baptism service. And we welcome a little child into the visible member of our church. And we're just so excited and thrilled. On the outside, it looks like we have made a really bad trade-off. Bob and I have screwed up big time. It's likely that Tiger would have tithed much more generously than the infant we just baptized. It's likely that Tiger had a much bigger sphere of influence that he could have used the gospel for than that infant does. And the little child, who we just brought into the visible membership of the church, has a long list of needs that must be attended to. They're just taking up space in their nursery, really. And Tiger has a long list of resources from which we could really benefit in this church. That's the type of spiritual math that the disciples are doing. Children, yes. Richard and Willard, no. Okay, what's going on here? Why do they keep coming up with the opposite answer than Jesus does? Well, part of the problem with their math is that they are looking at earthly riches as if it's an unmistakable sign of God's blessing on that individual. If it's an unmistakable spiritual blessing from God. And at the risk of oversimplification, the general idea in, in their day, and I, I would say in ours as well, was that if you were prospering is because you had done something good and God was blessing you. If you are not prospering, it's because you had done something wrong and God was punishing you. Think of Job's friends. When they came to Job and he's losing all his wealth, what is their reasoning with him? You must have done something evil. You must have sinned against God. Repent. That's why all your riches are going away. Because if if you still had them, it's because you're righteous. And they're gone because you're not. That's how we often, we we kind of live on this this credit-debit relationship with God. If we behave ourselves, God will bless us. If we misbehave, God will punish us. If we receive an unexpected blessing, we can sing like Maria in West Side Story and before she's about to get married, I must have done something good. My wife sings that every morning, you know? <laughs> if we're in the midst of a trial, we can catch ourselves thinking, what did I do to deserve this? Right? That's how, if something good happens, I think, wow, I must have done something, right? If something bad happens, we think, What did I do wrong, Lord? That's how we we often interact. But Jesus flips upside down our understanding of earthly riches in verses 23 and 24. Look there with me. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, if you have been putting earthly riches only in the category of spiritual blessing, think again. If you've always viewed earthly riches as making life easier, think again. Earthly riches is an impossible spiritual obstacle. That's what Jesus is saying. So impossible that you would have an easier time fitting the largest animal that they knew on an everyday basis, a camel, through the smallest hole that they knew on an everyday basis, which is the eye of a needle. He's not talking about some gate in Jerusalem, if that's what you've heard, where you lower the camel. There was no such gate. He's talking about the biggest animal, the smallest hole. Try to get that through that. And the reality is, I mean, if it weren't so serious, it would be humorous. You cannot fit. You cannot shove a camel. You can't even break it down to its molecular level and then somehow fit it through that needle and then put it back together. It's not his point. Yeah, you cannot do it. And this begs the question. What makes earthly riches an impossible spiritual obstacle? What makes, it, what makes getting a camel through the eye of a needle easier than getting a rich person in to the kingdom of God? What is it about wealth that poses such a lethal threat to our worship of God? The first answer, and this is key, is that money in and of itself is not the problem. Money is in and of itself not the problem. Money is a morally neutral entity, whether you have a lot or whether you have a little. But the human heart is not a morally neutral entity. The human heart was made by God to ceaselessly worship, desire, love, and enjoy things. And sin has not cut those faculties of the heart off. It has just distorted them and misdirected them. You never stop ceasing to worship, to desire, to love, and enjoy. The question is what? You worship and love and enjoy and desire. And the love of money, the love of money, not money, the love of money, is one of the most common ways that the heart is misdirected in its worship. The love of money is one of the most deceptive, counterfeit gods that our hearts fashion with our misdirected faculties of worship and desire and enjoyment. That's why it's an impossible spiritual obstacle. Well, let's dig further. Why? Why do our hearts look to this counterfeit God? Why do we fashion this counterfeit God? Well, one reason why is because our hearts can easily look to riches for a false sense of security. Everyone wants security. Everyone wants something they can know that it's stable, that will hold them up when when life is chaotic. In fact, when life gets chaotic, when, when life starts shaking underneath you, whatever you reach for, that's what you look for, security. And many times people reach for their wealth. We often think that there's no money, there's no problem that we will face that money cannot take care of. Money looks like a very present help in times of trouble. A mighty fortress is our money. And to the degree that we look for money for our security, we lack dependence on God. Those are mutually exclusive. Looking for security and money and depending on God. Those are mutually exclusive things. Our hearts can also easily use earthly riches to fill up our lives with a constant stream of activity. When you have enough money, there's no activity, there's no vacation, there's no hobby that you have to say no to. You can, but you don't have to. And to the degree that our money fills up and floods our time, we can easily lack giving God the time and attention that he deserves, because we're spread like butter over too much bread. Our hearts can also easily be deceived by earthly riches into thinking that our home is here and now. It doesn't get much better than this. When you have enough money, you can build a very comfortable life here. One that could easily be mistaken for your personal Eden on earth. And that's one of the the functions of the human heart is ever since we were kicked out of paradise, our, our true home, the place where we had fellowship with God, where it was perfect and pure and good, and God was there, Humanity has been scrambling to find that place once again or rebuild it here. And what Jesus came to say is you cannot build that place and you cannot bring yourself into that place but it hasn't stopped people from trying. And riches can make it seem like we have built our personal Eden. And so to the degree that our wealth makes this earth feel like it's our home to that degree we will not be reflecting on and living out of our citizenship in heaven and looking forward to the city, which is to come. And honestly, this is a controversial point, but I think a great deal of the hysteria surrounding the coronavirus, and what I believe is, in some cases, the extreme fear that is driven in people, is due to the fact that so many people only have hope in this life. Now, I'm not going to say that everyone who's being cautious and careful is, is taking the stance that's not true, it's much more nuanced than this, but I think for many people, this is as good as it gets. All their hope eggs are in this basket here and now. YOLO, right? You only live once. That's what the young people are saying these days. They have mistaken this world for paradise, and they will stop at nothing to protect it and to preserve it as long as they can. And that's a danger. And when something comes, like a virus, and there's no amount of money that can, that can stop the threat of that virus, you're scared because you're... you're, you're your paradise is being threatened. It's a dangerous thing. Our hearts can also easily be misled by earthly, relig- or earthly riches into thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Wealth can easily form a false identity that you project about yourself. We can use wealth to paint a picture of ourselves that I'm powerful, I'm important, I'm independent, I'm in charge, I- I'm set. But wealth will never paint for you the identity you need to come to Christ. I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer God but my sin. I'm like a needy little child who all I can do when it comes to Christ is cry out for help and saving and rescue. So to the degree that our wealth forms a false identity about us, we will not properly know who we truly are in God's eyes and who we truly are in Christ. And when you survey these reasons, and there's more, I want to take it easy, you can see why Paul gave this warning. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for wealth have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's the biblical perspective on the love of money. So how do we guard ourselves? How do we free our hearts from the grip that the love of earthly riches has on it? but we need to grow in our understanding what Jesus points out to the disciples in the final section of our passage. What he tells the disciples is that no amount of earthly riches can compare with heavenly treasure. No amount of earthly riches you could amass will ever compare with the heavenly treasure that is in store for you. Look at verse 27. So Peter sees what happened with the rich young ruler. He hears what Jesus says about wealth. And now he has a question that I really think comes out of a sense of kind of self-pity. He says, you know, see, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What are we going to get out of it? That's what he's asking. He's feeling a little sense of remorse. Because I think he sees that rich young ruler and he thinks, that would be a nice life. And yet Jesus sends him away, so he's thinking, okay, so we've left everything, so how is Jesus going to make it up to us? Right? Oftentimes, even when you sacrifice, that's the danger with sacrificing. You can focus in a hyper way on your sacrifice and think, oh, I really made a sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, Peter, if you only knew, if you only knew what's in store for you, you would never use the phrase, I made a sacrifice. So in verse 28, as Peter is licking his wounds, Jesus shows him, you should be leaping for joy in what you have in me. Verse 28, Jesus shows that whatever earthly position the disciples may have given up to follow him, what they will be in his kingdom will be more than able to make up. For those earthly positions they've lost, you'll get to sit on thrones, you get to rule. There'll be positions in my kingdom that will far outweigh any position you could occupy on earth. And then, in verse 29, Jesus shows that whatever earthly possession, whatever earthly relationship you gave up to follow me, it will be compensated for a hundredfold. I know for, for many people, they, they come to Christ, and, and in our context, it's not as much, but in other countries, The list here that he gives is the counting the cost of following Christ that you have to make right at the front end of it. Because in a Muslim community, in different places like that, when you follow Christ, you have to say goodbye to family, you say goodbye to your inheritance, all these other things. And I know for some of you that the home is not, you know, all, all people are in Christ together. That's not the case for everyone. So some to follow Christ means that you almost lose those relationships. And Jesus is saying, what you have lost, I will restore a hundredfold. You will never say that you lost more than you gained. You'll never say that I spent too little time with my gidgets and gadgets. Yeah, I just wish I would have spent more time with them. You'll never say you know, I invested too little time in my hobbies and took too little vacations. Yeah, I should have kept more of my money. In Christ, you will say the opposite. You will echo the words of the missionary Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose? Earthly riches will never compare to heavenly treasure. But that's not even the greatest antidote. The greatest antidote to killing the love of earthly riches is knowing the one who was rich and yet for your sake became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. If you want to displace in your heart the love of money, you must constantly place before your heart a more beautiful, a more satisfying object. It's not enough to take a vow of poverty and get rid of all your wealth. That will not solve the problem because all you've done is made it harder to act on your love of money, but you haven't solved your heart's love of money. And you cannot conquer your love of money by willpower. If you got up every morning and yelled at yourself 10 times a day, stop loving money, be more generous, stop loving money, be more generous, it would do nothing to solve your love of money problem. Because it's lodged in your heart, not in your behavior, ultimately. In order to displace a distorted love of money, you must replace it by beholding the loveliness of Christ. That is the only object that is more powerful, more magnetizing than the love of earthly riches. Look to him who gave up all the riches of his heavenly privileges and prerogatives to seek and save you. Look to him who gave up every earthly comfort to the point that he was suspended on a cross bearing the curse for your sin while Roman soldiers literally cast lots for his last earthly possessions that he had to his name. And he was hanging there so that he could bear your sin of loving money more than God. When we continually realize that Christ gave up everything for us, we will cease to believe that money can give us everything because we won't need it. When we realize that Christ owed us nothing but has generously given us everything that we could ever truly need, it will release that tight-fisted grip we have on money and it will free us up to be more generous. When we continually come to Christ and drink from his fountain of ceaseless joy, you will no longer be fooled by the mirage of earthly riches. It will no longer hold any power or sway over you. To displace our distorted love of money, we must constantly place before our hearts the loveliness of Christ. Only Christ has the miracle working power to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. Let's pray.